Hello, I am Eli Adashi, Professor of Medical Science at Brown University and host of Medscape One-on-One. -on -One. Joining me today is Dr. Joe Antos, the Wilson H. Taylor Scholar in Healthcare and Retirement Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome. Thank you. We are truly privileged to have you with us here today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Beginning with the obvious, uh, how would you sum up, best one can, the recent three-day hearings of the Supreme Court on the very future of the Affordable Care Act? Well, I, I have to say that the, the best single word is uncertain. Uh, we, uh, we do know that uh, oral arguments sometimes, not all the time, I suspect not so much in this case, but oftentimes uh, the oral argument stage is really put on to test the various sides on the issue, uh, not necessarily reveal what the justices actually have in mind. I don't think that's, that was the case generally in this, uh, for this momentous uh, decision that's about to be made. Uh, uh, for example, Justice Kennedy, who is often considered to be the swing vote, uh, uh, made an observation on, on the second day of argument about the mandate, mm -hmm. uh, uh, raising the concern about changing the fundamental relationship between the people and the government. Uh, that, was, that had to be something that was uh, from the heart, from the mind, uh, it doesn't tell you which way he is leaning, but it, it indicates a concern. It is obviously impossible to predict the outcome, uh, but in your mind as a seasoned observer of healthcare in this nation, you must have formulated in your own mind certain scenarios as to how this might go. Could you share with us just a few thoughts about potential directions that this might take, depending on potential sure, outcomes. Sure. So <clears throat> uh, we can dispose of the two extremes right off the bat. If the Supreme Court basically says everything is all right, then uh, what happens in the future depends on the election. If uh, President Obama is reelected, then things will move along, I won't say according to the plan laid out in the Affordable Care Act because the timing is too short, the expectations are too great, things will change. <clears throat> That's true for all legislation, but this is especially the case. Uh, uh, the other possibility, which I think is, is not at all likely, I think there is a possibility, by the way, that they, the Supreme Court could just say everything is fine. Uh, I don't think it's likely that the Supreme Court would throw the whole law out. Uh, but the, to me, the most likely pr uh, possibilities are uh, to remove the uh, mandate or to remove Title I. Title I is the uh, part of the law that deals with insurance for the under-65 population. Uh, and obviously, the mandate has zero impact on uh, the Medicare program, zero impact on the Medicaid program. Uh, it really is a, a law or a provision that is required of people in, you know, between the ages of zero and 64. Uh, so uh, now, if the mandate goes and everything else remains as it is, 
then we're going to have an interesting and difficult time. Uh, the insurance industry would like you to believe, uh, and they're not unjustified in this, that without, I'm going to say a mandate, not the mandate, without a mandate, uh, insurance, the insurance market will collapse. Uh, uh, the other provisions that make this uh, probable uh, without uh, some kind of mandate or some other um, restriction or encouragement for people to buy insurance, the, the main problem is uh, the two, two terms, two words, uh, guaranteed issue and community rating. Guaranteed issue, of course, means that uh, if you want insurance, uh, it has to be offered to you, you can buy it. Uh, and you can buy it without any consideration for your uh, current physical condition. Uh, so pre-existing conditions would not count against you. Uh, the uh, community rating part of it has to do with what insurers can charge. And in that case, it's really more a matter of can they charge more for people who will predictably use more benefits? And the answer is no. So if you can't charge more as a businessman, if you can't charge more to people who use your services more, then that's not a smart business model. That isn't going to work. And the insurers are right. Without, again, some strong encouragement, uh, what you'll have is, uh, over time, you'll have people uh, realizing that they can buy insurance anytime. So think about young people. Young people who don't like to buy insurance now. Anyway, they're paying off their cars, they're paying off school loans, and lately they don't have jobs, so they don't have the money anyway. Uh, but they're not inclined, they're healthy. They're not inclined to buy insurance. They don't think about it. My own, my own children were, went through that phase. A and uh, so they're not going to buy insurance unless there's some real pressure on them to do so. Um, uh, the uh, fact is that the mandate doesn't apply that pressure. Uh, the, the politicians who, su who support the mandate want you to believe that the word mandate by itself is enough. <laughs> Well, it's not true, of course. Uh, there's, there's no, there are no teeth in it. The, the, uh, in 2014, the penalty is a whopping $95. It will rise to the stratospheric height of $650 or $700, somewhere in there. Well, how, that's a year. Uh, how does that compare to thousands of dollars for the cost of health mm -hmm. insurance? If you're young, healthy, and know you can put it off, why wouldn't you? Uh, and the mandate has no other teeth in it either. Uh, there, uh, there's no penalty. If you don't buy insurance right away uh, at the first opportunity and you sign up for it a couple years later, uh, your premiums cannot be increased because you failed to follow through uh, as uh, the law wanted you to. Uh, if you uh, drop your insurance for a while and for reasons that have nothing to do with uh, you know, low income lost my job. That's a legitimate reason, uh, but no, no real reason other than well, I don't feel like paying for it this year. And then you sign up again, your premium doesn't go up. Well, th th those aren't sensible restrictions on mm. people. If I hear you correctly, uh, and I may be putting words in your mouth, but uh, you might be saying that. If, in fact, the mandate were to go and Title I with it, uh, 
that may not be the end of the world because that provision may never have been optimized, shall we say, in terms of the appropriate economic incentives and disincentives that would have, in fact, enforced the mandate. Uh, in which case, uh, whoever ends up with the post-Supreme Court world uh, would have to deal with the issue, in a sense, almost from scratch, whoever exactly. that president may be. Exactly. In including President Obama. Yes. You know, one of the big uh, uh, arguments, legal arguments, has to, has to do with so-called severability. Mm -hmm. And one of the peculiar aspects of this law it's unusual because virtually every law that is passed by Congress has a passage that says if any individual provision in this body of law is declared unconstitutional or made ineffective in some way, the rest of it stands. That was in the Senate finance version of the law. That was taken out of this version that the Senate passed. And I think the reason for that was that people not understanding what their own provision did came to the conclusion that uh, uh, you couldn't have guaranteed issue and community rating, these re insurance regulations, without uh, man a mandate, uh, believing incorrectly that this was going to be effective. Mm. Interesting. Speaking of uh, the ACA, which we can still do for the next two months, I suppose, with <laughs> impunity, after which time, who knows. There has been a recent debate, or perhaps a reigniting re of an older debate, of how much will the bill cost? Uh, will it live within its projected budget? Will it cost less? Or as the CBO has recently suggested, may in fact cost more? As someone who worked at the CBO at some point and continues to advise the CBO at this time, where do you, where do you see the issues? Um, it's hard for the right. non-informed provider out there to firmly distinguish between these three different scenarios. Sure, sure. Where is the truth <laughs> to the extent that such can be established? Well, I'm not sure the truth can be established, <laughs> but the speculation certainly can be. Yes. Uh, uh, so, so in terms of budget scoring, one thing that everyone should keep in mind, uh, which is, and I say this with uh, all uh, due respect to the CBO, I'm a graduate, as you say, and I, I uh, uh, enjoyed working there, and I think that they uh, fulfill a very important uh, place in the legislative process. But the fact is that they're not fortune tellers. Economists, I'm an economist. I'm not a fortune teller either. If I were, I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you. I'd be sitting on the beach, uh, you know, in my billion dollar mansion. Uh, so the fact is that economists are not necessarily very good at projecting the costs of especially complicated mm -hmm. legislation mm -hmm. as this is. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of things in this legislation that have never been tried for before, either individually or at least in, in one, uh, one full package. Uh, and so um, I think uh, this whole question of what CBO's score was several years ago and what's happening in the future is, is somewhat sterile. Uh, Discussion. I think. I think what's much more interesting is how will 
the health sector, assuming that this law continues largely intact, how will the health sector react? That, that really determines not just the real cost, but yes. it also determines what happens to patients, physicians, and other providers. Well said. I suppose another way of looking at this is to say that such exclamations or reports are probably then subjected to political uh, ends uh, by whoever the interested party may be, but as you say, really does not serve a terribly constructive purpose. I mean, we should be concerned about the cost of anything, and, and <clears throat> if we see costs in, in any program rising beyond what uh, the social and political consensus would have, then, then we would yes. hope that Congress would take some action. Uh, we would hope we would be disappointed in most cases. <laughs> Turning now to another perennial challenge, and that is the financing of Medicare, uh, yes. about which you have written extensively over the years. Um, it seems appropriate to say that the future vision of the financing of Medicare is articulated on the one hand by the Affordable Care Act and the administration, and on the other hand by the two budgets, I suppose, and the two proposals by Congressman Paul Ryan last year and this year, those being very different uh, uh, outlooks on how the financial viability of the Medicare Trust could in fact be maintained. In the interest of our viewers, could you say a few words about how those two visions compare and contrast the strengths and weaknesses that you see in either, and to the extent that you can, and I know it's difficult, take us a, a little bit through the process by which some of this may ultimately resolve. Mm. Thank you. It's a great, a great series of questions. Uh, how many hours do we have? Um, Understood. So let's uh, let's first consider the president's position on Medicare, which which is really contained in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, he he put out a budget this year. All presidents put out a budget every single year. Uh, budget, by the way, in this case means for every president a political document. It does not mean a household budget. It doesn't mean we're going to live by it. What we live by is what Congress ultimately passes. So the budget really is a blueprint. It's a request. That it's a request. It needs to be approved by the Congress. Except that it never is. I don't believe in, in the at least the modern history of budgeting uh, that any president's budget has ever been simply taken right. as a whole. And, and that's a completely unrealistic um, uh, prospect. So, so uh, what, what does the president have in mind? Well, he has in mind the same kind of policies that we've had in Medicare for for decades, really, since mm -hmm. almost the beginning, uh, which is if you see Medicare spending rising too rapidly, then uh, we'll see Congress take cuts in provider payment rates. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some new wrinkles, of course, uh, but the new wrinkles aren't very well worked out, and they're going to take some time. Uh, and I, I think a lot of these new wrinkles make a lot of sense to me. I mean, the idea, for example, of bundled payment, it's a great concept. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect that uh, right now 
the, uh, the viewers are saying, many of them are saying, what do you mean it's a great concept? And what I mean is it isn't worked out. And there are all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. But the idea of paying a relatively fixed amount mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, say, all the things that go on in the hospital, mm -hmm. including physician services, which we don't now have, uh, could potentially encourage hospitals and doctors to cooperate more thoroughly mm -hmm. uh, and uh, eliminate some things that don't need, need to be done in, in, you know, under the rubric of greater efficiency. Mm -hmm. There's another risk, however. And the other risk, which is shared by really any, any way you cut the budget, uh, and that is especially cutting, cutting prices. When you cut prices, what do you get? Well, potentially, if you cut deep enough, you will discourage providers from participating in the program. Mm -hmm. Now, politicians want us to believe that that would never happen. But if we were really talking about implementing the cuts in the Affordable Care Act, we're talking about driving Medicare payment rates down very quickly to Medicaid rates mm -hmm. and never rising above that. And the only reason they stopped Medicaid rates is there's a law that says that Medicare can't below, pay below, the, below Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So is that a practical way to proceed? I, I don't believe the answer to that is yes. I think we've, we've seen over time uh, with the sustainable growth rate for physicians that uh, if there's the prospect of taking really huge cuts in provider payments, Congress is going to blink. Congress is going to say, no, that's too much. They've done that for eight or nine years in a row with the sustainable growth rate. Uh, there's no prospect that they will fail this year to kick that can down the road, but there's also very little prospect that they'll resolve that problem anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So, so that's basically it. And you know, people talk about the Independent Payment Advisory Board, the IPAB. Um, uh, we, you know, we could argue a little bit uh, among friends about whether that is really a new thing or not. Uh, but the fact is that their tool is reducing payments to providers. Mm -hmm. That's largely it. Like I said, the other alternative, uh, as articulated best by Paul Ryan, but in fact it's not a new idea. It's, it's been in the health sector for many, many years. Uh, it's now called premium support. Uh, it's basically putting Medicare on a budget. It's another way to... Uh, bring Medicare spending, the growth rate Medicare spending under control to reduce the, the rate mm -hmm. of growth of spending. Um, uh, people uh, criticize it, arguing that, uh, I believe incorrectly, that this impo will impose huge costs on your mother. Well, most mothers uh, live on fixed incomes. It was true in 1965. It's true today. Uh, the vast majority of people who are over 65 are living on Social Security. They may have a pension, but there's no prospect that they're going to get a sudden increase in, in payments just because their costs go up. And so what does premium support really do? Does it really force uh, the senior citizens to pay another six thousand uh, dollars for uh, Medicare. Well, that's one interpretation. But a more sensible interpretation is that uh, uh, our parents don't have the six thousand dollars, and what it really is is a shot across the bow mm -hmm. at all providers, saying, "Not 
we know exactly which payment rates to cut. We know exactly where to put restrictions on the use of services, but rather, here's a budget. And guess what? You won't be going back to your real customers, your patients, and getting thousands of dollars more, more because they don't have it. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference in philosophy. One, the president's approach is a more centralized approach. It's the approach we have used since 1966. It hasn't worked very well. The other one uh, says, essentially, let's put the program on a budget, uh, but let's not try to guess what the price of specialist services should be compared to, uh, specialist physician services yes. compared to home health to make the most ridiculous comparison possible. Mm -hmm. Let's not try to figure that out. Let's let the health plans work that out. Let's have the negotiation continue between the patient and the physician about what should happen. And what everybody says, both Democrats and Republicans, let's give everybody, patients and physicians, better information about what they're doing, what it costs, and what the consequences might be. Thank you. Is there any prospect that some of this will be resolved before the election or after the Supreme Court has spoken or at any other point in the foreseeable future? Well, I, I, do, I do think that we will see some resolutions. Obviously, the Supreme Court will, will uh, settle some minds about, about certain things. Um, if under what I think are the two most likely scenarios, either throwing out the the mandate or throwing out all of the insurance uh, provisions, all the under 65 insurance provisions. Um, in theory, that would throw it back to Congress to figure out what they really wanted to do. Unfortunately, as I think everyone knows, the political climate has deteriorated, not just over the last four years, but it is steadily deteriorated over the last decade. And so I think it's highly unlikely without some other force and I'm about to say what that other force is, uh, for Congress to reach agreement on uh, resolving the problems associated with the Affordable Care Act or, or any of its other problems. Um, okay, so what is that other force? <laughs> well, the answer is the uh, debt limit. Uh, you may remember that uh, last summer, last August... A contentious summer. A contentious summer, and in August uh, they, they passed something called the Budget Control Act, uh, the word control was a misnomer, like most things that Congress passes, there's usually one word that's wrong, that's the word that was wrong. Um, and the net result of that was that uh, there was a, uh, supposed to be a deal made between cutting spending and raising the debt limit, raising the government's ability to borrow. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to be able to borrow. Uh, the Medicare program needs to be able to borrow. Uh, all Basically, the government just cannot operate solely on the funds that come in through, through taxes. And it's, this is not just an issue because of the continued slow economy. That, it's a bigger issue, right. but it's always been the case. So we need, we need to be able to borrow uh, to keep our programs going. And uh, so the deal was raise the debt limit, cut the spending. What happened? The debt limit went up almost immediately. The spending cut remains to be seen. And it will, if it really happens, it will space itself out over the next uh, nine years or so. Uh, well, 
we're, we're, if we're lucky, the debt limit will not be reached again until sometime in early uh, next year. Uh, some predictions have it that we're actually going to bang into this thing again, um, possibly around election time. Mm. If that's the case, I have no doubt that Congress will do what they've done with physician payment. They'll pass something in the, in the lame duck session that gets, buys them a few months so that they can actually negotiate with the new Congress, not the old Congress, and the new president. And by the new president, I, I also include President Obama. A second term makes you a new president. There's no doubt about it. Your perspectives change. So here we will have this enormous fiscal pressure, which cannot be delayed, will have to be dealt with, Unlike last year, the fiscal hawks, which are both Democrats and Republicans, will realize making a deal where we raise the debt limit here and wait a long time for cuts just doesn't work out very well from the fiscal prudence standpoint. And so I think what, what will happen will be a really brutal battle. The net result will be that if it's President Obama, he will have to find very large savings. They'll have to be real. And I think the Affordable Care Act, parts of the Affordable Care Act are clearly going to be on the chopping block. And he will say publicly that he's against it, but privately he right. will make a deal. And here's the reason. Not only does he need the cuts to raise the debt limit, but also there's practical reality. Even the states that really want to put exchanges into place are having trouble. And they need to be in place, not in 2014, they need to be in place and fully operable by June of 2013. Mm -hmm. Well, the regulations that the federal government has to issue that give the, the insurers the guidance as to what they can offer and what they can't offer haven't been issued yet. The essential benefits package, well, that was a general vague guidance. That's not a regulation. Mm -hmm. That regulation has to be finalized because insurers have a lot to lose, both financially and legally, mm -hmm. if they accidentally misinterpret the intention of the administration and move in some direction that, oh, we didn't mean that, and the regulation comes out too late to make a change. So basically what we have here is the usual problem in Washington. Anything complicated? They say, oh, we want it right away. But, of course, reality eventually intrudes. I think reality will intrude. And I think the president would reluctantly accept two changes. One is delay 2014 to 2015, which is really probably not enough time, but it helps. For the exchanges. For the for exchanges, example. for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, reduce the Medicaid expansion from 133% of poverty to 100% of poverty. The states all said they could live with that. That actually saves money uh, in a budget sense. Uh, and then the uh, subsidies in the exchanges, I could see those being pared back as well. So that would, be, that would be a very sensible, I think, package of uh, compromises that uh, second-term President Obama could make if he has to. Uh, if the pressure is on, and I think it will be. If nothing else, I hear echoes of the grand bargain all over again. <laughs> exactly. Before we conclude, perhaps uh, 
I will force you yet again into the fortune teller uh, uncomfortable position by asking you, to the extent that you can tell, what would healthcare look like under a President Romney? Well, I don't. And of course, you, we yeah. were going to have to allow for the uncertainty of the Supreme Court action. But sure. with that as a given, how do you think about health care under President Romney? Well, one of the things he's, he's said is that he believes in state experimentation. Of course, he, he's proven it in Massachusetts. Um, and I think that if he were elected, that, that would pre also presuppose that the uh, Republicans would, would hold their majority in the House and they'll get a few more seats in the Senate. I, 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 they may have the majority in the Senate under that scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anyone will have 60 votes, so it'll still be, the Senate will still be a tough call for anybody. And, um, uh, but the Affordable Care Act did something. It's already done it, right? And it's not so much that the government did it. It, it opened sort of the spigot. And so health plans, provider groups, uh, employers, they've all taken some sort of an action. The states, many of the states have as well. And a lot of those things, you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And so although uh, Mitt Romney, for good, sound political reasons, is saying he's going to repeal it on day one, the reality is, that uh, a lot of what we see having already transpired will continue to go on, but a lot of the big spending parts of it uh, will be rethought. doesn't mean that we won't have big spending. Of course we will. We have it now, uh, even before 2014. But I think that that will be rethought, and there will be an attempt to uh, reform the private insurance market in sensible ways, uh, I think that would mean not uh, eliminating uh, insurance underwriting altogether, which is what the insurance reforms did under the Affordable Care Act. I think what it means is that you have some reasonable regulation so that underwriting actually works in a positive way. Penalize people by making them pay a higher premium if they don't, without good reason, maintain their coverage. That's the most sensible thing in the world. Democratic analysis, analysis, analysts, sorry, and, and Republican analysts, so basically uh, those who aren't involved with campaigns have basically agreed that that would make sense and we would just do it. So there are a bunch of those kinds of changes that would occur. Um, I strongly suspect that uh, the Medicaid expansion uh, to 100% of poverty would probably stick. Uh, uh, I'm certain that big cuts in provider payments in Medicare will stick because, bluntly, we don't have another fiscal tool. But under Romney, we would see over the course of his first four years uh, whether we could make some progress politically uh, uh, on the Hill and uh, socially uh, in terms of people understanding what their alternatives really are. They're not great in the Medicare program. But I could see us making considerable headway towards a sensible premium support style program. If nothing else, President Romney and candidate Romney are not one and the same. Right. 
as has been true for many of his predecessors. If I may close on a personal note, um, I have made the observation that you started your career in the Department of Labor. And thereafter, of course, you dedicated much of your energies to the study of healthcare economics, healthcare policy, and related matters. If you could perhaps trace for our viewers the seminal events that were responsible for this career choice and made you obviously interested in the long term in what is probably one of the signature issues of our time. Well, of course, when I started my career, there was no such thing as health economics. Uh, health policy was not a, uh, uh, an issue that you studied uh, at any level, undergraduate or graduate. It, just, it, it, it really didn't exist as an academic discipline. Uh, and I think the first health economists were, in fact, labor economists. Uh, we, I, I like to think of us as uh, having been saved. Um, it's a religious conversion almost. Uh, but but in, in fact, uh, I was um, in the Office of Management and Budget. I had the opportunity to uh, move over across the street to the President's Council of Economic Advisors. This is during which administration? This was in the Reagan administration. Reagan administration. I was uh, I'm not a political appointee. I've never mm -hmm. been a political appointee. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but, uh, and the, who was Reagan's... Uh, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, Dave, David Stockman. David Stockman, uh, who was, uh, in my opinion, he was a, he was a great director. Um, uh, he uh, his goal was to know more about the little details of the budget than the budget examiners who studied them on a daily basis, and he often he often uh, uh, you know beat them at the intellectual game. Uh, kept everybody on their toes. But but uh, I was invited to go over to the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, I was uh, I, I went over there uh, during what turned out to be uh, August vacation. I was the only one in the office. The phone rang, uh, and it was someone who uh, uh, introduced me to the concept of catastrophic health insurance and Medicare, and that is really how I got my start. Uh, this was someone who eventually became an official uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services who worked for doc, Dr. Otis Bone, who became secretary uh, mm -hmm. uh, towards the, uh, I think, the second part of uh, uh, Reagan's presidency. Uh, and he said, well, I've got this paper. Would you mind reading it? So he sent it to me. Uh, I didn't know him. I didn't know Otis Bone from The Man in the Moon. I read the paper, and I called him back, and I said, well, it's a pretty good paper. You have a few issues. And for some reason, my skepticism uh, made an impression, and uh, uh, I just got sucked in more and more and more. Um, you could say that I've had a highly unsuccessful career. Uh, I was uh, 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 one of the leaders for the first attempt to add a drug benefit and, and catastrophic health insurance to Medicare. Both of those failed in the 80s. Uh, I uh, argued against... The way we pay physicians, lost that one, uh, and so on. It's been quite a career. <laughs> <laughs> we think so, and thank you very much for sharing that with us.
On this note, sincere thanks to Dr. Joe Antos and to you, our viewers, for joining Medscape one-on-one. -on -one. Until next time, I am Ellie Adashi.